Attention doctors and other healthcare workers and students. MedCon 2018 is coming to Marion University's College of Osteopathic Medicine in Indianapolis, Saturday, April 14th. This year's theme is what does it mean to be a Catholic physician or nurse in 2018? Our keynote speaker, Dr. Jeffrey Berger, is the medical director of the Catholic Addiction Treatment Center in Michigan, who will focus on the current opioid epidemic. Speakers from all five Catholic medical guilds in Indiana will speak on topics ranging from counseling the unborn patient to physician-assisted suicide to management approaches to burnout. Others will clarify the difference between ordinary and extraordinary care and explain the challenges of providing medical care to undocumented immigrants. A special Friday evening student event will give insights from personality research to help them select their specialties. For more information, go to medcon2018.splashthat.com. That's M-E-D-C-O-N-2018.splashthat.com. This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our on-air guest will be Irina Grosu. She is the Outreach Advisor for the Office of Civil Rights for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. In fact, she was the one tasked with the public launch in January of this year of their new division on religious freedom and conscious protection. Please stay tuned for an incredibly fascinating interview and insight into what's going on in Washington, D.C. to protect the rights of conscience of your physicians and nurses. But now we're going to take a look at a recent medical news item with Andrew. Well, I came across a very interesting article recently. The article itself was published uh, in July of 2017, but it's just been making more headlines of late in the secular media. And the, the gist of it is, is that light at night while you're asleep is actually linked to depression. So we should just have darkness at night. Really, the more the better. Um, there's, there's a couple nuances. This study was done looking primarily at the elderly, but they found a correlation with lights even as low as five luxes, which is a, a measurement of how much light. Five lux. I'm actually looking at new surgical lights now, and the one I'm looking at is 100,000 lux. Yeah. So, so five is pretty darn pre- low. Pretty low. <laughs> even as low as that, they could, they could figure out a measurable difference in the depressive symptoms among the people they were studying. Now, are these while the people are awake or asleep? Well, they're depressed while they're awake, but the light's on while they're asleep. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Unless they're having depressing dreams. <laughs> that's, that could happen too. But this, you know, this makes me think of my practice where I, I really enjoy talking about sleep hygiene with my patients, trying mm-hmm. to find ways to maximize good sleep. And some of the most common culprits of disruptive sleep would be that TV on at night oh, or yeah. using any screens actually in the hour leading up to bed can diminish the quality of your sleep and the ease of falling asleep. So the folks who have the TV on at night and even night lights can be linked to daytime symptoms of depression. So even if you're sleeping but there's a night light on near you. Correct. Is that because the light gets even through the eyelids to some extent? And You know, it's hard to say. They didn't really hypothesize to that extent. Um, but I, I would at least make the conclusion that maybe the sleep is not as good and then being less refreshed during the daytime could worsen symptoms. So, you know, trying to get, you, you only have a limited amount of time to sleep. There's no new time in the day. When you're <laughs> asleep, you want to get full credit for it. That's right. You know, and so I, I'd say for the folks who have the TVs on while they're asleep, uh, I would really stop that for sure. And even the people with night lights using a dimmer night light, I mean, some people use it for safety. Uh, it's, it's not a terrible thing to have, but the dimmer, the better. And I think you'll probably feel better for it in the morning. We have uh, night lights, I know, at our cottage, which are um, motion sensor night lights. So they're off unless one of us gets up to move, and then oh, it comes on. Nice. And in fact, we just had our bathroom redone in our master bath, and the toilet now has that kind of light. Oh, so wow. when it senses motion, then the light comes on. As long as you can make it that far. As long as I can make it that far. That's right. That's awesome. Stumble, stumble. <laughs> So the take-home homework is if you've got a TV in your bedroom, shut it off before you go to bed. And really, that's a whole other topic. But avoid screens, if at all possible, before bed for one hour. Well, that's even been linked to uh, bluish-tinted light before going to bed, that that doesn't allow the appropriate level of melatonin 
from the pineal gland in your brain so that you can't sleep right. And, and now some of the phones have capacities to shut that off at nighttime, don't they? In fact, I learned that a few months ago, and I turned it off. So now my smartphone light it has more of a yellowish tint to it, but I still don't use it before I go to bed. I like to turn it off and be unplugged when I go to bed. See, that that's going to lead to better sleep, I think. Well, also, my patients often ask, so how did you sleep last night, Dr. McGovern, since you are operating on my face? No patient wants to hear, oh, I got at least three hours last night. It'll be okay. No, it won't. They want to all know I got great sleep, <laughs> so I do everything I can to get that every night. That is awesome. So, Andrew, you also have something on screening for us, another preventive health care tip of the day. Yeah, I've, I've got most of the topics this segment, it looks like. I've, <laughs> I've, because you're so good, the reward for good work is more work. <laughs> I love it. You know, today we're going back to one of our, our favorite government agencies, the USPSTF, that we all know and love at this point. Wait, is that the tennis Foundation or something? <laughs> U.S. No, that's not. <laughs> the good old United States Preventative Screening Task Force. Believe it or not, folks, there will come a day when we've gone through all of these recommendations. <laughs> uh, believe it or not. And then they, Andrew will make up some more. They, right. We might have to branch out into Mulally recommendations. <laughs> or uh, I'm, I'm actually looking at the Charter of Healthcare Workers, and I think it would be useful to go through that in short, digestible segments for our listeners. I think people would appreciate that. As well as recipes from his mother that are just to die for. Mom's got a couple good ones. We'll see if I'm allowed to share them on air. I don't know. They're kind of secret. Well, today's recommendation comes from October of 2015, and this one is something that many people probably are aware of, diabetes screening. We should screen people for diabetes, they say. And they recommend screening folks between 40 years and 70 years old who are overweight or obese. And that's as simple as it gets from, from a screening standpoint. Now, I remind folks that the USPSTF is a cost control organization. So their, their goal is not necessarily to catch everybody with diabetes, but to catch enough people that it is economically advantageous. And we're talking about adult onset diabetes, not to be confused with type 1 or childhood onset. Correct. You, for type 1 especially, we don't really screen for it because it'll present with symptoms. But type 2, a lot of people can go on with type 2 diabetes for a long time without any huge symptoms. And then when they do develop symptoms, frequently they, they can be irreversible complications. And when you say that obesity is part of it, with type 1 diabetes, it's usually the opposite. They're usually thin, aren't they? Frequently they are, and that's usually one of the first things that you'll see is that someone, maybe they're not even overweight, maybe they're of normal weight, but they start losing weight for no reason and against their will, and that can frequently be a warning sign. So isn't it challenging uh, to tell a patient that you're obese and you need to have screening? Well, honestly, they're in good company because most of us are in America, <laughs> 75, 80%, depending on the studies you look at. So it, in, in my mindset, I expand these recommendations a little bit more in my practice. And that brings me to the top three things that you need to know. And so at a minimum, number one, folks who have a BMI over 25, which we talked about the happiest BMI so it's, before. it's overweight, not just obese then. Not even just obese. Anybody over 25. Because obese is 30 and above. Correct. That's correct. So 25, a lot of these people, if you saw them on the street, would look of normal of normal build or even slender um, when we've got this, this growing average of what we, we view as kind of the average body type. Um, so anyone with a BMI over 25, anybody with hypertension, and anybody with cholesterol definitely needs to be screened. Um, at least by 40. If they've made it to 40 without getting screened, they definitely need to. But I would recommend even folks sometimes earlier than 40 for a couple of reasons. Family history puts people at very high risk. Some ethnic groups are, have a higher risk, such as African Americans and Hispanics, mm -hmm. as well as Native Americans and Pacific Islanders. And What's more, a lot of time your insurance company wants you to get screened. Frequently, you can work through a program and get money off of your premiums if you go through a wellness exam. And so many insurances recommend and even require this annually to get the benefits. And so this is something that we do in my office almost annually for most adults. Ah, well, that was the source of my own personal screenings was applying for uh, life insurance. That's how I find out my – and is this just a fasting blood glucose? Ah, that's my second point. Ooh, You're good, Tom. Good You're good. The, there's 
three ways really to screen. There's actually more, but these are the most common. The most common and my favorite is the hemoglobin A1C, ah, which yes. can be done in an office test with a finger poke, and it is a three-month average of your sugars. And so if you just got off of Christmas break and you've been kind of indulging too much, or you are just got through Lent and <laughs> you've been being really good, it averages three months. And so it really dilutes out recent behavior and abnormal behavior. So I think from a screening standpoint, it's very effective. You can also get a spot glucose test, either done fasting or non-fasting, and that looks at what your glucose is right now, just like a snapshot. And we have cutoffs that designate diabetes, prediabetes, and normal function at those levels. So these can all be done with a finger poke in your doctor's office. Wow. And I've got one more point. I thought so. I'll, I'll yes. squeeze it in. And so the, <laughs> we have plenty of time, Andrew. If, if borderline, you know, or I mean, if you have frank diabetes, it's important to screen because we want to treat you and we want to treat you early because we know diabetes, one of the main causes of things like amputation, dialysis, erectile dysfunction, blindness, as well as a huge contributing factor to things like strokes and heart attacks. If you have diabetes, you got to get treated sooner than later because we're going to push these complications down the road. If you were bound to have a heart attack when you're 60 because of diabetes, we want to push it down the road to when you're 80. And so that's the advantage of treating early. And those who are borderline, we recommend intensive lifestyle interventions. These things would be mainly related to losing weight, to maintain a healthy weight, daily cardiovascular activity, avoiding excess carbohydrates, mainly in the form of sweets, and smoking cessation. So if really when in doubt and I'm talking to everyone, you should get screened for diabetes, and especially if you're in one of these higher-risk categories. Because in diabetes, it has effects on numerous organs, but it's mainly by damaging the, the tiniest blood vessels, isn't it? It, it really is, and that's, that's what we talk about is microvascular changes. And so there are things that frequently you won't notice at the earliest stages, but then after they progress, many of them are irreversible. So that's that's the goal in screening. We catch it before problems happen because frequently we can't fix the problems. So we want to prevent diabetes early and often. So before going to the break, we have our patented medical trivia question of the day. And I dove into the website medscape.com. And I looked at information on prescription medications. In 2016, the last year for which we have full data, my question is, which prescription medication garnered the most in sales? And the amount was a staggering $13.6 billion with a B, like makes honey. $13.6 wow. billion dollars for one of these medications. Was it... Number one, Enbrel, or Etanercept is the generic name. Was it number two, Harvoni, which is Ladipisvir Sofospavir? Is it number three, Lantis Solostar, which is a form of insulin? Was it four, Humira, also known as Adlimunab? Easy for me to say. And number <laughs> five, was it Remicade or Infliximab? So the, the brand names of these drugs are Enbrel, Harvoni, Lantus Solostar, Humira, or Remicade. And if you want to know the answer to it and what the medication is used to treat, you'll have to come back after the break where Andrew and I will continue with more of Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. Today we have a special guest from inside the Beltway, Washington, D.C. We are interviewing Arena Grosu. She is the Outreach Advisor at the Office of Civil Rights in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And our topic today is conscience rights and religious freedom rights for physicians and other health care professionals. Arena, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for having me on, Tom and Andrew. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> so the big lead-in, on, on January 18th of this year, 2018, uh, the Department of HHS announced the formation of a new Conscience and Religious Freedom Division in the Office of Civil Rights. 
Why should our listeners be excited about this arena? Well, your listeners should be excited because this new division means that their voices will be heard and their fundamental and unalienable rights of conscience and religious freedom will be protected. Some of these rights have been under-enforced and the new division will enforce all applicable laws to protect the rights of individuals and entities. And these laws have been on the books for years, is that correct? Yes, yeah, some of them have been on the books for for decades, and some have been passed by Congress with near-unanimous support. And, of course, I want to remind your listeners that these are laws that, that were passed by Congress, and, and our task at HHS, and especially in the Office for Civil Rights, is to enforce them. So if we remember back to our basic government, the three branches of government, the uh, legislative branch makes the laws, the judicial branch judges if the laws are being followed, but the executive branch enforces the laws, and that's what HHS is part of, correct? That's right. So the Office for Civil Rights has three divisions. Prior to the announcement, it had two divisions. Ah. The, first, the first one was civil rights. The second one is health information privacy, and the, and the new one is conscience and religious freedom. So each of the divisions has functions in outreach, meaning let's bring this to the public so that the public is educated and knows about um, their rights. It also has policy-making functions to make sure that, uh, to create policies so that they can more effectively enforce the laws. And then the last component of that is the enforcement function, meaning that OCR will investigate the complaints that we get to see how they match up next to our federal laws, whether it's involving civil rights, conscience, religious freedom, or health information privacy. I see. So when you when you talk about enforcement, you you've referred to looking into individual cases where the laws may not be being followed. Can you describe what that looks like? What kind of enforcing would you guys be doing? Sure. So we have laws about, for example, that hospitals must have notices that com- contain information that we have asked them to contain. And so, for example, if a, if a hospital is not in compliance or is is breaking some law, we will investigate those cases based on the complaints we get from individuals. So if a, if a, an individual or an entity feels that their rights have been violated by uh, an, an entity that receives HHS funding, then it would fall under our jurisdiction and OCR will investigate those cases. Why did we need this new division at HHS? So as mentioned before, these Laws have been on the books for decades, but in the past they've been treated as second-class rights. Uh-huh. And it's it, a lot of doctors and healthcare workers uh, have felt, especially in the last few years, that they can't practice according to their their conscience and religious beliefs, and so they're they're pushed out of the healthcare space. They're forced to decide, make a decision between uh, following their conscience and staying and, and doing the work that they love to do. So our job is to make sure that the laws that were passed by Congress are enforced and to protect the fundamental rights of individuals to conscience and, and religious freedom. And I'm aware that on, on January 19, 2018, the Office of Civil Rights announced a proposed conscience regulation. Can, can you tell us about that in particular? Of course. So this conscience regulation goes hand-in-hand hand with the new conscience division. Back in uh, 2008, there was a regulation in effect, which was repealed substantially in 2011. What this new proposed regulation does is to propose to bring back how how it was and to create parity with other civil rights laws. There, Right now, under conscience, we enforce about four different types of statutes, but there are about 22 others, 21, 22 other ones that are provisions within this new proposed conscience regulations that would protect conscience rights of individuals. So those are within the proposed conscience regulation, and we welcome everyone to submit public comments by going to regulations.gov, and they could find the proposed conscience regulation. It's titled um, Protecting Statutory Conscience Rights in Healthcare, and they can submit their public comments about this regulation. 
That's wonderful. We'll have to get that on our website so that people can access that because I understand that people in D.C. listen to the public, especially when there's an overwhelming outpouring of comments. Well, exactly. And we will, all the comments will be read and taken into account. And this is a proposed regulation, which means that once, once we review the comments that we receive, we will incorporate information into, into the final rule. If you've just joined us on our show, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where Andrew and I are interviewing Arena Grosu, the Outreach Advisor at the Office of Civil Rights in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Arena, how has the Trump administration signaled that they are going to protect and support religious liberty, especially in the health care arena? Well, back in uh, May 2017, President Trump issued a religious liberty executive order, and he promised to vigorously enforce federal law and to provide robust protections for religious freedom. And he said that we should not allow people of faith to be targeted, bullied, or silenced. And following that, a few months later, uh, in October of 2017, Attorney General Sessions issued a religious liberty guidance that outlined how different uh, administrative agencies can implement the executive order. So HHS, in January, a few months after that, talked about how we are going to implement this promise of the Trump administration and and President Trump himself, and to make sure that our current laws are being enforced. Well, we are happy to hear that here at Dr. Doctor. Arena, how how many conscience and and religion complaints have you guys received already? Well, this number is actually very big now, and uh, and I will put it in, in perspective compared to other years. Before, Before I give you the numbers, I wanted to make sure I delineate between two different types of complaints. So there's the conscience complaints, and then there are the religion complaints. Uh, Before uh, the new administration, before the election, there were about 10 complaints total in in the last eight years. So that's about 1.25 conscience complaints per year (laughs) under the Obama administration. Was the right email posted on the website? (laughs) It seems like there's got to be more out there. man. Right. So under the uh, new administration, we received, up to the point of the announcement of the division, there were 36. After the announcement of the new division, there were 57 in a matter of weeks, and for a total of 93 current conscience complaints. Now, add on to that the religion complaints. So far in 2018, we have 403 religion complaints, and we have actually surpassed the number of combined religion and conscience complaints in the last two and a half months than all than all of the combined religion and conscience complaints in 2017. Wow. So the numbers are booming. People are hearing about what the Office for Civil Rights is doing. They are filing complaints. Do, and do we you, encourage other people to file complaints if they feel that their rights have been violated against. Do you, do you have an idea as to why there's so many more complaints? Is it just because the, the word is getting out with this new office? Or it, d- is the thought that there's going to be more enforcement at this point under the current administration? I think people are getting that message. When we launched in, in January, we said we are open for business, that we will take each complaint seriously. And I think people have heard this message and know that we are serious about enforcing current federal law. So people can file complaints at hhs.gov slash OCR slash complaints if they feel that their rights have been violated. And again, this is for any of the federal laws that we enforce, and that's in civil rights, whether it's based on age or national origin. We also have the health information privacy laws. So if people's rights have been violated in, in that area, we also uh, enforce those laws and the conscience and religious freedom laws. So that comment is a, a nice segue into my next question, which is, what are the laws you're enforcing? I was on your website, and it delineates them very nicely, but if you could let our listeners know. Sure. So the conscience laws that we are enforcing are the Weldon Church and Coates Snow and Section 1553 of the Affordable Care Act. And these conscience statutes namely have to do with provision, payment of, referral for abortions, 
sterilization, as well as uh, Section 1553 has to do with assisted suicide, and Code Snow has to do with training in getting in induced abortions. So these are our conscience statutes. As I mentioned, there are about 22 other statutes that the proposed conscience regulation is looking to enforce. So those are listed in the proposed conscience regulation if anyone's interested in seeing the other 22. Uh, but, those, but these are the ones that right now uh, we are currently enforcing. There's been chatter in the blogosphere and on media that this new division and the proposed conscious regulations will discriminate against the LGBT population. What's your response to that? Well, anyone is welcome to file complaints with OCR if they believe their civil rights or their conscious religious freedom or health information privacy rights have been violated. The proposed conscience regulations purpose is to provide a mechanism for us to enforce current federal laws. And these federal uh, laws were, were put in place to prohibit discrimination and, and are not themselves discriminatory. They actually protect people from being discriminated against. Arena, we have finished half of our interview. This is wonderful. We're going to take a quick break here on Dr. Doctor, coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios with trustworthy medical information for Catholics and everyone else. This is Dr. Doctor, where your host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Andrew Mullally, today are discussing conscience and religious freedom protection for uh, physicians and nurses with Arena Grosu, the outreach advisor at the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services. So, Arena, one, one question that I wanted to ask would be in regards to cases that have already been evaluated and kind of been closed at this point, kind of by way of example, do you have any, anything that our listeners would, would like to learn on that, that topic? Sure. So probably one of the biggest and the most well-known cases, Kathy DiCarlo's case uh, back in 2010 or 2009, she worked as a nurse at a private hospital, and she alleged that the hospital forced her to assist in an abortion, which is in violation of the church amendment. So she filed a complaint with OCR. OCR investigated, and actually the hospital agreed to comply with the church amendment and to ensure that personnel who object to this type of uh, procedure uh, will not be forced to do so. And also, they revised their HR policy concerning non-discrimination so that it is in accordance with federal law. So that, for example, is one of the case. Another case, there was a university that violated the church amendment as well, and it required applicants to a nurse residency program to sign a form agreeing that they will assist in abortion procedures. And actually, the form said, and I'll quote, if you are chosen for the nurse residency program in the women's health track, you will be expected to care for women undergoing termination of pregnancy. If you feel you cannot provide care to women during this type of event, we encourage you to apply to a different track of the nurse residency program. So after, um, the, after they filed a complaint with OCR, the university changed its procedures and its policies and made a public announcement that it would no longer require applicants to the nursing program to sign this form uh, so that they wouldn't have to uh, go against their conscience. Now, both of these were cases uh, involving abortion, but as I said before, the, our conscience statutes cover abortions, sterilizations, assisted suicide, so cases involving those areas specifically. So anyone who feels that they have been violated against or discriminated against can file, and we will see if the current statutes apply to their specific situation. In the Kathy DiCarlo case, uh, did she receive anything for her uh, sufferings and troubles? Actually, I'm not sure about that, but uh, I know that, obviously, as I mentioned, that the, the hospital did change its, its policies. But, of course, that was very traumatic for her. To, to be involved in that against her will. Man, it's it's really encouraging that some of these policies are being changed because it definitely makes it sound like if if you have moral objections, uh, you can't apply here. Don't even try. You know, and that... Right. That, that and bring, that is also another case. Uh, so if people have more... Uh, if, if they're uh, discriminated against in getting a job because of their 
stance on abortion or sterilization, assisted suicide. That's another that's another type of complaint that we can you know we can receive here. So um, it's not just if they are currently working in a place, but if they are um, being discriminated against because of their position. And what if it's uh, someone who doesn't want to prescribe contraception? Is that covered under the rubric so of sterilization? I, so whether it's that or, or other issues that we, we can't actually prejudge the cases, we encourage people to just file a complaint if, if, they, if their conscience has been violated, and then we will see if their case with the facts of their case falls under our jurisdiction. It, it requires that it, it involves a covered entity, which is an uh, HHS-funded entity. So if uh, your conscience has been violated, but it's not under our jurisdiction, then it's not something that we can handle. But we will, we will take each case and investigate it and see if it falls under our jurisdiction and then apply the facts of the case to, to, and compare it to the law and see, and see where that leads us. I, I was simply wondering, does the law use the word contraception anywhere, or is it just sterilization it uses? It does not mention contraception. Okay. Uh, there, in Church D, it talks about uh, performing or assisting any part of a health service program or research activity. It doesn't mention specifically uh, contraception. These laws, Weldon Church and Coates Snow, are specifically for abortions, sterilizations, and and then Section 1553 is specifically on assisted suicide and euthanasia. Arena, how, how does protecting the rights of conscience and religion create diversity in health care? Prohibiting discrimination against the exercise of conscience and, and religious freedom enhances diversity because it gives patients more provider options to choose from. The same people who go into the healthcare field and, and for, for a Christian organization or for a Catholic hospital, for example, what drives them are the, are the ideals of that organization, and it is this, those same ideals that drive them to, to, to do the work that they do. So when we allow diversity, when we allow healthcare professionals to, to live and practice according to their conscience, then you have more people staying in the healthcare field. So that provides, that gives a lot of options for, for people in healthcare. If all those people dropped out of healthcare, you would have less less doctors, less nurses, less options. I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that's something that the news media is unaware of, that many, many patients want doctors like us, and they're more comfortable with doctors like us. And if there aren't doctors like us and there's just one kind, that's not very diverse. Well, and when we think about what, for example, how how many hospitals are affiliated with the Catholic or Christian churches, if all of those places had to close because they couldn't operate according to their conscience, we would lose out on a lot of a lot of workers and a lot of health care. Oh. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor and Redeemer Radio, where Andrew and I are interviewing Arena Grosu from the Health and Human Services Department or Office of Civil Rights. Arena, there is concern among many of my fellow members of the Catholic Medical Association that things might be going the way of Canada, where it might be virtually impossible and impractical for a Catholic to practice medicine according to our Catholic conscience. In fact, we're already considering alternate forms of board certification. In the current climate, what you see is this concern over the top is too pessimistic or is it realistic? And, and why would you say what you do? Well, I would say that now that with, with the robust enforcement that OCR has in place, healthcare professionals should feel confident that they can practice according to their conscience and religious beliefs. So as, as indicated, uh, the Trump administration has promised to protect religious freedom and OCR is doing its part in making sure that our laws are enforced. And, and what we, would, we want people to know is that we are here to protect their rights. And that is a very good development, and especially um, since, since the new administration has come into place. Would it be fair to say that this is the most robust that the HHS has has attacked or tried to protect folks of conscience, really in recent memory, has has there ever been well, a time? Definitely. Yeah, that's that's definitely very because 
even even as I said, there were ten conscience cases in eight years and conscience complaints in eight years, and now we have, you know, nine times as many in in the last even in the last few months uh, we've gotten. You know, so it's it's a people are aware that we are here and that we are taking federal laws seriously. And we intend to enforce them as as uh, we should. That if not, if laws are enforced are not enforced, then they are just words on paper. And we're here to enforce the laws that have been passed and to and to respect that that process. The 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 fact that we have these laws on the books and that they protect rights and and conscience and religious freedom are rights that are you know are protect, it's our first freedom protected in the Bill of Rights. And we need to make sure that. Americans are free to practice and, and, to, and to protect their rights of conscience and religious freedom. Is it entirely possible that if a new president gets in who doesn't share the current president's view on this, that the current office you work for could be given a different direction on enforcement of the laws? Uh, well, I can't really comment on what on on what could happen or this office is in place and it's not going anywhere. And this office uh, is is now part of the Office for Civil Rights and under and we expect that complaints will continue coming in 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 the months and years looking forward. So this office will be enforcing conscious religious freedom rights along with all the other civil rights that we enforce and uh, that's what we uh, expect in the future. Man, that is that is uh, welcome news to to us here on Doctor Doctor. I I was wondering what kind of advice would you have for us Catholic physicians, especially and and really all physicians of faith who want to continue to practice according to their consciences. What what kind of advice would you have for us? Well, I think that you know our current laws are in place to protect your right of conscience, and uh, we want you to to make sure that you can exercise your right of conscience and and know that. The laws are behind you. The the laws that Congress have passed has passed are behind you, and that we will make sure that these laws are enforced. Is there anything that our patients who might be listening can do to help support the rights of physicians and other healthcare professionals who may sense a difficulty in practicing according to their consciences? Well, both patients and physicians, anyone who's listening to to your show, should should tell their friends and families about what OCR is doing, and to let them know that um, we welcome them to file any complaints if they feel that their rights have been violated. And I also want to make the point that while a majority of the conscience statutes are for healthcare workers, there are conscience statutes in the proposed conscience regulation that that are for patients themselves. And so this, our, our conscience, uh, the proposed conscience regulation is, means to protect both the rights of conscience of individuals and patients as well as healthcare workers. And what is that website again where they can make comments, both patients and healthcare workers? They, they can go to regulations.gov and if they can, if they want to submit a public comment, they just type in protecting statutory conscience rights in healthcare. And if they type that in, the proposed conscience regulation will come up uh, and they can submit a public comment on, on it. And we are receiving public comments until March 27th. And as we draw to a close here, Arena, is there anything else you think is important that our listeners should know about the Office for Civil Rights at HHS? We are, we are open for business, and we are here to protect uh, all of your civil rights and conscious and religious freedom rights and health information privacy rights, and uh, we will take, we'll take your complaints seriously. So we, we intend to uh, enforce all of our laws. Thank you, Arena Grosu from Washington, D.C., for being with Dr. Doctor today. We'll be right back on Redeemer Radio after the break. Thanks much. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today's trivia question, as voiced in the first segment, will be repeated now, and that is, according to the website Medscape.com, which of the following prescription medications garnered the most sales in 2016 to the tune of $13.6 billion? Was it number one, Enbrel, 
Number two, Harvoni. Number three, Lantis Solostar. Number four, Humira. Or number five, Remicade. I've got to say, Tom, as, I, as you were going through this list, one of the things that struck me is I think I've seen these all on TV. You oh, know, yes. which kind of brings up a, an interesting soapbox of mine, which we may need to say for another day about drug companies marketing to patients. Well, that sounds good. Let's try that. But clearly, drug companies are doing pretty well with the stuff you see on TV. Those are not the cost-effective medicines. They are, but they're also the uh, commercials my kids love to laugh at when they list all the potential side effects. <laughs> and my kids think, people really want to take these? <laughs> Dad, you're not going to make us take this, are you? So the, the number, well, and what four of those have in common is that they are some of the new um, or biologics. Well, I guess three of them are. Harvoni is that new drug for Hep hepatitis C. C. Which is really, I mean, it's very expensive, but in a lot of ways it, it's worth paying a lot of money for because it effectively cures Hep it C. It cures it. Which is amazing. Yes, it is amazing. So three of these are uh, drugs that I actually prescribed uh, in the past when I was doing a general dermatology practice. Uh, for patients with psoriasis. So Enbrel, Humira, and Remicade are used for psoriasis, uh, as well as uh, some different uh, inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. Some are used for rheumatoid arthritis. So they're really saving joints. They're they're clearing skin for the first time in a number of patients' lives. And some of them are remarkably safe. And the answer to the question is actually the drug Humira. Humira, or adalimunab, uh, you know, $13.6 billion uh, in the U.S. market. That's out of about $450 billion. That's a lot of money. But the hepatitis C drug was $10 billion. Harvoni, that was second in 2016. And I haven't seen data yet for 2017. But these drugs are, are much safer than some of the old drugs and much more effective because they are specifically targeting um, cell receptors only, and they will not bind to other receptors that can cause a number of side effects. So, so that's a good thing. They are, they are good things, and that's, it's a tough issue, I think, especially in America where everybody's concerned about rising drug prices. So when you're looking at some of these drugs, 100000 a year, not necessarily the biologics, but cancer drugs frequently, sure. I mean, that, that's a big debate, not only in, in medicine, but I think in politics, too. How, how are we supposed to judge what we're, what we're spending on this? Is that too much or not enough? For the person that gets better, gee whiz, that's a good deal. It's worth it. <laughs> but uh, not a lot of people, I think, cough up the $13.6 billion. Usually that gets diluted into our health insurance premiums and yes. co-pays to doctor visits and everything. And so it's an it's a interesting uh, can of worms that we should probably do a show on sometime. That's right. But now we're going to turn to a listener question. And this one states that in one of our previous shows, we discussed studies that link the use of birth control to an increased risk of breast cancer. So a young woman wants to know, if I took birth control when I was younger, before I knew about the harmful effects, but I've stopped now, is there anything I can do now to decrease my risk of getting breast cancer? Well, I'd like to take a stab at that one. The answer in general is yes. The, the best thing to do, as, as you've done, listener, is discontinue its use. And frequently, over, over time, the risk will diminish to some extent. However, that increased exposure does lead to some risk, especially of breast cancer when we're talking about hormonal contraception. So it begs the question, what decreases the risk of breast cancer? having children. Yes. The more children you have, mm -hmm. the less breast cancer. Not the only reason to have kids, but it is it is a correlation <laughs> that I did not learn about in health class. You think they'd bring this stuff up, but I never heard about that. The kids that you do have, if you breastfeed them, that de decreases the risk of breast cancer. And the longer you breastfeed them, it decreases the risk of breast and cancer. And isn't it true that the longer the period between taking the birth control pills until the first pregnancy also increases your risk of breast cancer, so the sooner you have that first baby might reduce the risk? Exactly, and even going a step further, ladies who have children at younger ages, the age of their first pregnancy, the younger they are, the lower the risk of breast cancer. So women who wait till they're 35 or 38 to have their first child 
higher risk of breast cancer than a woman who starts when she's 20 or 25. Yes, and listener, if you're not married yet, we recommend you get married before having there, that first There's baby. a lot of caveats to this, <laughs> but I mean, I'd, I'd also add into our listener all of the usual suspects that, that you could probably surmise as well. Maintain a healthy weight because obesity is related to cancer. Um, not use tobacco products because smoking makes cancer worse. Be cardiovascularly active, try and get exercise every day because those people do better with cancer. And so there's many things that you can do, but especially related to the gynecologic stuff, it's going to be your childbearing years that, that has a lot to do with risk reduction. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Andrew, for your wealth of information. Uh, we have a special short interview today with Dr. John Traveling, one of the editors of the book Catholic Witness in Healthcare. We did a a show on uh, in the past, and we had so much good information. We wanted to pass on something about a hospital which is planned in the Diocese of Lansing, which is going to mimic what Padre Pio's hospital is doing in Italy. We have a special segment today. We are talking again with guests from a previous show, uh, Dr. John Traveline, who's one of the editors of Catholic Witness in Healthcare, which can be purchased on Amazon or Barnes & Noble for $45, a 513-page book that's good for the learned lay reader as well as the medical professional or medical professional in training. The last chapter of the book is called A Model of Catholic Care, the CASA, which means house, and it comes after the idea of that St. Padre Pio had, where hospitals would be places where people would be relieved of their suffering. Would you expand on that, John, for our audience? Yeah, this was, as you said, Tom, the, the, the chapter goes into St. Padre Pio's vision for authentic Catholic care, and, and uh, clearly uh, maybe some might say ahead of his time, so to say, but this this tertiary quaternary care facility in southern eastern Italy providing authentic Catholic care, so state-of-the-art medical care, but just as state-of-the-art, great attention paid to the spiritual dimension of, of, of everyone, no less patients who are afflicted with uh, illness in this hospital or cared for in this hospital. It's, um, it's steep with Catholic um, care and it's a beautiful um, realization of how good medical care is delivered to the to the human person. And you were just there within the last year, were you not? I was, and and was privileged really to to meet with um, uh, one of one of our uh, co-authors for the chapter uh, on the Casa, uh, who I had only known through email communications and so on, and uh, it was very privileged to have had a tour of that uh, of that Casa to spend a, a full day there, and it was quite uh, quite enriching. How is it different than the standard hospital where you have practiced in the United States? Well, even, and I've, I've practiced, I'm in a non, I'm in a secular institution, have been for a few decades, but I've had uh, experience uh, limited in other, in, in Catholic hospital systems. And um, what's clearly different is certainly the, um, the awareness of the spiritual dimension for care. They're very explicit in a Catholic institution with, with, a, with a chapel imagery in the hallways, um, uh, prayer um, uh, in, in openly uh, with, with uh, patients and staff. So um, this, is, this is probably the most obvious of differences. One of the main things that I was interested in learning about was that this idea might be coming to the U.S., is that right? That's correct. There, um, in 2011, a medical clinic opened in um, the Appalachia region in, in Kentucky uh, and, and is, is, is thriving, as I understand. But I, I learned recently, just about a month ago, um, the end of, in, uh, in December, that um, uh, the Health, Catholic Healthcare International announced uh, uh, it's been part of the vision of, of CHI to replicate St. Padre Pio's model for hospital in the United States. And uh, there was an announcement made that the um, 
the Bishop of Lansing, uh, of the Diocese of Lansing, Michigan, um, just generously donated some 40 acres of land, I believe, uh, for for developing this sort of uh, this project. So that is to to replicate uh, a casa. Uh, in the United States. So it's very exciting, and uh, we'll have to stay tuned and see where this goes. But it's extremely exciting because many of us in, in healthcare um, love to see how healthcare um, uh, is done in this richly faith filled um, environment. Can you give me a, a concrete example of how the CASA might differ from other Catholic hospitals? where we may have worked or had family members as patients it may be it may be in the magnitude of the um catholic identity in in the casa certainly catholic hospitals i think do a very uh, wonderful job in terms of the imagery as one walks through the halls and in the patient rooms uh, in the procedure rooms, for example, where there, there often is a crucifix on one of the walls, um, I think uh, I think something that models the cost would just be in, in terms of the magnitude being much greater in terms of that Catholic identity, more explicit, perhaps. Um, I think that that'll be a, a major difference. I think that is one of the main goals of the Catholic Medical Association, especially, is to try and reestablish what may be some lost ground in Catholic medicine in America. And we really appreciate your witness, and, and not only that, but also your book, The Catholic Witness in Healthcare, Practicing Medicine in Truth and Love, available on Amazon, $45. Dr. John, thank you so much for being willing to come in and talk to us today. You're most welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until next time. And remember, your medical decisions today can have eternal consequences. So please choose wisely and choose Catholic. Remember, you can find information about all the topics and resources discussed in this episode by visiting RedeemerRadio.com doctor and checking the show notes for the episode. Next week on Dr. Doctor, we'll be joined by Indiana State Senator Liz Brown to discuss new public health legislation efforts, including regulations for abortion facilities and promotion of safe haven baby boxes. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and never miss an episode and follow us on Facebook for updates at Dr. Doctor's show. For more information, visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.